Good morning and welcome to our program today for the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I'm Scott Warner and I'm president of our organization, which is now in its 26th year. And this is our first event at Bethany and I want to thank this wonderful organization, Laura, uh, there you are, for, for so generously hosting us today and providing free parking. Now on to today's program, all you wanted to know about spices in a, in a nutshell. Our spice experts, or spice spurts as I call them, are Tom and Patty Erd, who own the iconic spice house located in both Evanston and Old Town. And they've just retired, but you're still, you'll talk about that, right? About how you're deeply involved with the Spice House still. And Patty and Tom are among, truly among this country's most revered spice authorities. Patty's family is the Penzi family, maybe you've heard of it, but Penzi Spices in, in Milwaukee. And um, they've, uh, the two of them have regaled our group with their talks in the past. I know that today their talk will be filled with savory information, and while their language may be a little salty at times, we're in for some well-seasoned information. So Tom and Patty, come on down and pepper us with everything you know. <laughs> and, and I was clean this time. <laughs> So as Scott said, this is my family business. Uh, my parents started the business in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1957, so we're turning 62 years old this year, uh, which, is, which is a long time for a mom and pop business, although maybe we've grown a little bit beyond that. Um, I see a lot of new faces today, so you're gonna have to, and some very old faces, <laughs> old customer friend faces. Um, so you're gonna have to indulge me that I'm gonna tell a story we've told a hundred times, but it's my favorite Cinderella at the ball story about what happened to us when we decided to move to the big city of Chicago. So my dad had this really wonderful creative idea to formulate some seasonings based on ethnic neighborhoods in Milwaukee. So he would take an old iconic Italian neighborhood, use all sorts of Italian flavors but then name the blend after the neighborhood. So in Milwaukee, it would be Brady Street Cheese Sprinkle. Well, we had a lot of fun doing the same thing when we moved down to Chicago, and Tom and I spent so much time exploring the city of Chicago. It was just, it was amazing. We had such a good time. And as you all know, there are many, many, many ethnic neighborhoods in Chicago. So we haven't even basically scratched the surface, but we have a line of seasonings that we make named after Chicago neighborhoods. So our second store was in Evanston, which was a very easy, easy, sell. Uh, we were kind of afraid of the big bad city of Chicago, you know, El Capone and all still, uh, that's all anyone still hears about in Milwaukee. Um, but finally we opened our store in Old Town in the year 2000, and when we did that we were geographically made in Chicago. So we came to the attention of the head of the cultural center, maybe even with Judith Hines' help here. Um, we got to do a little talk about our ethnic seasonings at the cultural center, and the head of the cultural center what was her name? Lois. Lois. Yeah. Uh, she really liked our talk, and she invited us to speak at Mayor Daly's surprise birthday party. So that was a big, big coup for us, two mom-and-pop shop owners, to speak. We went to this very fancy French restaurant called Maxime's, and the chefs, Rick Bayless and Gail Gann, they were going to cook with our ethnic Chicago blends because it was an ethnic Chicago-themed luncheon. So it was all very cool, and we practiced our little talk probably 
600 times. However, when we got to this place, it was kind of intimidating for us. It was the, the mayor and his family, and they were all the high muckety-mucks from City Hall in their dark, austere, three-piece suits. All we had to do was tell the people what was going on in food. You know, nobody would know what Lakeshore Drive seasoning is, or no one would know what Bridgeport seasoning is going on their sandwiches. So we were just going to tell them what was in this. But... Tom started out our talk and he said, we have proudly named these seasonings you're going to be tasting today after the wonderfully diverse ethnic neighborhoods of Milwaukee. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. It was, it was like, you know that commercial where they say, Monica, right? It was just like that. So there was no going back, but basically after we were done talking, we were invited to sit down to lunch, and we sat at the table with Rick Bayless and Gail Gand and Rick Tramato and uh, Peter Burkhoff of the Burkhoff family. It was, it was a pretty good networking opportunity. And finally, it was, it was mercifully time to leave, and the mayor said, <laughs> the mayor said, uh, oh, please don't leave. I've just got word a special guest is dropping by. And if you leave, it'll look like I don't have any friends. <laughs> so the special guest ended up being, at the time, again, many years ago, the president of the United States, Bill Clinton. And we were told to sit in our chairs. The president would come to us and greet us. And he came to our table first because, of course, we had all the chefs sitting with us. And what did he say at our table? Well, it was, it was a round top. So there's, I think, eight or ten of us at the round top. Um, you know, we're sitting with all the guys in the white jackets and the white coats and the hats. And, and uh, Clinton comes up to the table. Can you hear me if I hold this down here? Yeah. yeah. Clinton goes up to the table and he says, you know, when I get out of this, I thought maybe I'd have a restaurant. I figure if the food's good enough, people still want to talk to me. <laughs> and, you know, the Secret Service had come in like five minutes earlier and they made sure there was there was no silverware on the table. <laughs> they pulled all the silverware off. But they, they didn't leave a candle on the table. That was the only thing you could have on the candle, uh, or, or on the table was a candle. And they told us, keep your hand on the table. You can see it. You know, that, was, that was the rule. So the president indeed went to shake everyone's hand. And uh, my poor husband had a little trouble there oh, as well. So, okay. so <laughs> you know how they are. Gonna, they want to shake everybody's hand. So, you know, when they say every, everything is relative, in my mind, that was absolutely one of the best days of my whole entire life. And he will tell you it was one of the worst days of his life, and it was the same day. And it was so funny, because when we went to bed that night, he was laying in bed, and I watched him go like this. <laughs> over and over again, like he could get a do-over as he was falling asleep. But that was pretty much the only time we were invited to talk for the mayor. So uh, we're very happy to be here today, and we are going to... And, and that could not have happened to us probably in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as great of a town as that is. So there was a lot of good things that happened to us here by moving to Chicago. So we're going to talk today about what we consider the master spices in the spice trade. And we're going to start with the king of spice. So what would you guess would be the king of spice? Pepper. Pepper. Pepper, yeah. There's, there's one pepper grown on the planet 
than all the other spices put together. Um, it's pepper's just a, it, it's a berry grows on a vine, and uh, uh, you know the vine will, will crawl up a tree or crawl up a pole. And uh, and imagine uh, a cluster of grapes. That's what it looks like. So, but they're real little grapes. And uh, like any other berry, early in the season when they first come out, they're they're green. And through the front row, you can see these are green. Okay. So the green pepper is just in the tree. They're they're early, like green grapes. They just came out. <clears throat> if we if we pick up at that point, we have green pepper. If we leave them on the vine longer, they change colors, just like any other pair. And these get, these get a, a, a dark, dark, dark brown, or a brownish red. And we lay that in the sun to dry, they get even darker. And they dry and the skin drinkle up a little. Think of grapes, or, th or think, of, think of raisin. We're getting on the skin drinkle up a little. And that's what we call black pepper. Now we take black pepper horns, and we soak them in water, the outside shell swells up, and you can rub the shell off. And if you rub the shell off, you get the inside, and the inside is white. So it's all the same plant. It's all the same plant. Now, for, for thousands of years, in fact, anthropologists figure that people have been trading pepper and spices since about 1000 BC. Uh, back then, these tribes at the bottom of Arabia, the, the Menaeans and the Nabataeans, they controlled the spice trade. They had figured out how to, how to get to and from India, where a lot of the spices grew. Not just pepper, but uh, you know, there's cardamom, there's nutmeg, there's, there's, there's turmeric and ginger, and all kinds of spices growing here. And so the, the, those Arab tribes were taken back here to their homeland, and then train the guys that would take them up the Red Sea, boy, my hand is sheep. Up the Red Sea, and then from there they would train them to the Europeans. So by the time they got to Europe, they were very expensive. <coughs> Only rich people had pepper. Very rich people. And of course, the clergy. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, the, the royalty. <coughs> so, these Arab spice merchants were never ever going to tell the Europeans that these, that these two are the same plants. No, no, no. You like this one more? This is very expensive. You got to pay a lot more for this one because the Europeans like it more. Uh, this is very rare and only a little bit of your produce. So, Europeans always thought that black ones and white ones were different plants until until the 13th century, there was a friar in France. His name was Bartholomew. So that would be a French friar? French friar, yes. <laughs> Sorry, he makes me say that. There's, there's no good jokes in the spice business. Bartholomew is a clergy. So he's got white ones and black ones. And he's a little bit of a scientist. And, and, and so Bartholomew is, is cutting open the, the, the white ones and cutting open the black ones and looking at the cross and if you look at the cross-section of a black one and a white one, they're exactly the same except for what? The outer shell. Do it in So by the way, figures, well, these are going to be the same thing. They taste a lot of light. The insides are exactly the same. The only difference is this outer black shell. So he writes a letter to the bishop. 
And it tells the bishop, Mr. Bishop, I believe that these must be the same plant. And that now, the, 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 the Catholics found this letter in an old abbey in France. Now they got it framed and it's in Rome. I don't have an exact translation, but it's along these lines. And, and, and it goes to something like this. You know, the white ones and the black ones must be the same plant, Mr. Bishop, because, because uh, and it must be that in the land where the peppercorn trees grow, you know, he didn't know the line. The peppercorn tree forests must be infested by serpents. And, and in order to harvest the peppercorns, the people that live there have to get rid of the snakes. So, so they set the forest on fire. And, and the serpents take off. And when the fire burns out, they go in and harvest the pepper. And the pepper that gets burnt is the black <laughs> they got They got toasted, you know. <clears throat> and the pepper that escapes the flames is the very expensive. Now, that's what the Europeans thought was the difference between the white and the black. It's the old serpent problem. You know, you've got to remember, in the 13th century, you know, if it comes to the clergy, it's got to be true. So, 200 years ago, and that's what, and that's what Europeans thought was the difference between white and black, the old serpent problem. Until 1497, Vasco da Gama, Portuguese guy right here, he gets around to Africa, he gets up to India, he's got three ships, he's uh, up on the stuff to trade, and he, uh, he brings back black ones, white ones, green ones back to Europe. Tells the Europeans, hey guys, these are all the same plant. They just, they just process them. And also, Da Gama goes from here to here, without these pesky little men in the way. And the price of pepper didn't bring down. So now regular people could afford pepper. 1496. You know, four years after Columbus. So we really enjoy those uh, Arabian stories about why spices are so expensive. And my, my husband absolutely hates, hates, hates the marketing part of our company. But even back then, I think marketing, telling a story is what sold a product. So the story that sold cinnamon basically and why cinnamon was so very expensive is this is a big cinnamon log, cashew log. Uh, this grew only in the mountains of Bacchus. And Bacchus was the god of wine. So when wine was first created, it wasn't so wonderfully refined as it is today, and it didn't necessarily taste all that good. It made people feel good. So they needed to disguise the flavor of wine, and the top of the list for disguising flavors would be the sweet baking spices, so cinnamon. So only uh, the mountains of Bacchus, no man could reach these mountains, but only huge, gigantic birds could fly up into the mountains, and they would gather these sticks, and they would bring them back to the valley, where the natives lived and there was water, and they would make their nests out of these cinnamon sticks. And the natives knew these were somehow valuable, and they devised a ruse where they would lay out giant donkey carcasses. So the birds must have been like giant pterodactyls because they were flesh-eating birds. They would go and gather the donkey meat, take it to the nest for the baby birds. Eventually, the weight of the donkey meat would cause the sticks to crack. They would come tumbling down. The natives would rush in at great peril to their lives from these flesh-eating birds. And gosh, doesn't it make sense? You're going to have to pay a lot of money for this product? <laughs> so in 
So when I say cinnamon, this is a piece of cassia. We sell four variants of cinnamon in our shop, and we're going to let you um, smell and taste the difference. Tom's going to tell us a little bit about the differences. Yeah, you know, most of the, most of the cinnamon in this continent up here is, is this variety. And you've seen this before, right? Cinnamon sticks. Okay. It's not going on the mountains of bodies. It grows in Indonesia, right here. And in Indonesia, we cut the bark off the branches with a curved knife. And, and, and it's real long. And we lay it in the sun dry. And then as it dries, it curls up. So imagine, like a, like a birch tree. You know how the bark comes off the, off the tree and it curls? This stuff does the same thing. It's one piece of bark curled up. And then, and then we run it through a saw and we cut it. That's why, that's why the ends are straight. That, is, that doesn't make the ends straight. So we can cut it 12 inches, we can cut it 6 inches, we can cut it 4 inches, we can cut it wherever we want. Whatever size jar you got, that's what we um, now, so cinnamon is just tree bark, right? Then, then what's, what's ground cinnamon? Yeah. Sawdust. Oh. <laughs> right? So, now, we're going we're, we're to give you a little bit of this to taste, and the way to do it is, you put some, here Scott, hold your hand up, you put some on your hand like this, don't be bashful, tap your finger on it, tap your finger on it, tap your finger on the cinnamon. Taste it, like that. Come on, come on, quicker, quicker. And then, and then, and then brush it on the floor. Keep the place on the ground. Brush it right on the floor, right on the floor. Okay, grab it and pass it down. Keep it going. Okay, got it? That's delicious. Yeah. Starting one in the back, one in the front, and then in the Sawdust. There's no sugar. That's round up wood. Okay. You know, I was going to, how did they figure out you could eat this stuff? You know, was somebody chewing on a tree? Yeah. So, now, I'm going to keep talking, so don't, don't, don't talk. Okay. This, this was not the first stuff to get to Europe. It's too far away. From here to here, way too far away. The first stuff to get to Europe came from here, Sri Lanka. Okay. And that is, that is this variety. Now, in, in, in Sri Lanka, it used to be called Ceylon, so a lot of times we call this Ceylon. Now we call it Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, the trees grow different. It's, it's much more like a, like a big bush. And we cut the whole bush off about a foot from the ground. There's rules, because they, you gotta, they want the bush to regrow. They cut the whole bush off about a foot from the ground, and they take the whole thing over to their hut where they're peeling, and they peel this real thin bush bark off the branch, and they lay it the sun to dry, like they do in Indonesia. But this stuff is real, real thin. So they'll lay four or five sheets on top of each other, and then they all curl up together. It's kind of like rolling up a big long cigar. Now we're going to pass this around, and, and I want you to smell which, which end is. Okay, smell the end that's up. That's the one that we broke and that, that, that has a smell. And you can see, and look at it too, it looks like a scar. 
It's many, many layers of cinnamon inside. And, and smell that and then pass it to your neighbor quick. Okay. No, you don't just smell very different. Okay, so you got so you got two different species. You got you got cinnamomum cinnamomum cassia and cinnamomum zananicum. Or in the Latin, you would call that the cinnamon from That's when you're tasting now. Two different species, same genus. That's your botany. Now, in the spice trade, we grate cinnamon. And how do we grate cinnamon? We grate it by oil content. How much oil is it? When I talk about oil, I'm talking about volatile oil. Volatile. It gets in the air. It's what you smell. It gets on your tongue. It's what you taste. The one you tasted from Indonesia, 2.5% volatile oil. The one you're sniffing now from Sri Lanka, 1.5%. Volatile oil. This stuff, this stuff is macho cinnamon. <clears throat> this is 6% volatile oil. Now we're going to give you a taste of this and the same thing. Don't worry, don't worry, we've got 100 pounds of it. Um, <laughs> right under your hand, keep it going, don't be the little, you've got to go. There's 100 people behind you. You've got to go, go, go. I'm going to start. Okay, keep it going. <clears throat> it should be like 90 minutes. Is it a lot stronger? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, just yeah. 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 So we never say one is better than the other because it's a very subjective thing, but the one you are tasting now is by far and away our customer favorite. It is the strongest, spiciest cinnamon. It's probably not good in every single application because of its spiciness, but when we get to the holidays, actually we grind 100 pounds of that Vietnamese cache of cinnamon every week in every store, and when we get to the holidays, we actually might grind 100 pounds three separate times a week. That's how fast it goes out the door. And there's basically a man that goes down to the basement for the afternoon to grind that cinnamon. When he comes out of the basement, he is the best smelling a man will ever be. And I like to think he gets on the, he gets on the L to go home, and the whole car probably smells like our wonderful cinnamon. If only we could figure out how to advertise that. So um, another one of our, our really great honors is we had Julia Child come to visit our shop in Milwaukee many, many years ago. And uh, see how this is like a baseball bat, how hard this is? But when she visited, the trade doors had just opened up with Vietnam. We had not stocked this cache of cinnamon for probably 20 plus years because the trade doors were closed with Vietnam after the Vietnamese War. So we were super excited to show Julia that we now had this amazing new cinnamon. That wasn't really new, but new to our, our shop. So we're like, Julia, we just got this Vietnamese cash in. You have to taste it. It is so marvelous. And she basically grabbed a piece of wood like this out of my hand and took a giant bite out of it. And... And uh, my family is rarely at a loss for words, but we all kind of collectively sucked in our breath and went, oh! 
she was 80, and I think she had dentures. And we were like, do you, do you want to maybe spit that out? Because it's not really meant to be eaten like that. It's meant to be tasted. And she, to her credit, she just kept chewing and chewing and chewing until she was finally able to, to swallow it. And she said, oh, my dear, that was absolutely delightful. Thank you for sharing with me. So I have, a, I have one of my prized possessions is I have one of these signed Bon Appetit Julia Child. It's very cool. <laughs> Um, another thing that we're, we're pretty much in the business for culinary application, but it certainly doesn't hurt when herbs and spices are <clears throat> on the receiving end of good medical studies. <clears throat> Excuse me. We could not figure out why one summer everyone was coming in to buy cinnamon, because summer is not a, a baking time of year. So finally, someone brought the study in that we hadn't seen ourselves, but there was both a Rutgers and a Johns Hopkins studies that came out within a few months of each other, uh, touting the benefit of cinnamon in uh, leveling blood sugar for type two diabetes. So of all the things that is extremely easy to incorporate into your diet, Cinnamon is, it, it's, we have some cinnamon in our breakfast every morning, whatever it is, fresh peaches over peaches, toast, cereal, uh, it's, it's just an amazing thing to have. So, speaking of medicine. Another spice <laughs> known since antiquity is ginger. Uh, anthropologists have found ginger in Chinese tombs that were over 3,000 years old down here in the tropical part of China. It's a very tropical plant. It won't grow up here in China, down, only down here. Uh, there's no more ginger growing wild on the planet. It's all cultivated. But by the time man first started to write, the first Ayurvedic writings down here, which predate, uh, which predate the uh, Egyptian writings, the first writings down here, the Ayurvedic stuff, mentions ginger. So by that time, ginger had already, we know it's indigenous to southern China, had already made its way through Indochina, over to India, and when the Romans, when the Romans came down the Red Sea, ginger had already made it across the Arabian Sea and onto the Horn of Africa here. So it was, people were treating this and moving it real quick. It was very, very valuable. Um, the Chinese did not put ginger in their ancestors' tools so that they would have something to snack on in the afterworld. <clears throat> they put ginger in their, in, in their ancestors' tombs so that they would have <clears throat> medicine in the afterworld. Ginger is powerful medicine, and 3,000 years ago, people knew that. Um, uh, ginger is very good for, for a common cold. Ginger is extremely good for uh, whatever ails the tummy. It, it's, uh, it's, it's an alkaline. It's a base, so it neutralizes stomach gas. Apparently, 3,000 years ago, people had stomach aches and colds. And ginger was very good for that. So as with many foodstuffs in Europe, uh, the Romans get a lot of credit for spreading things throughout Europe. So they had discovered a baker in, in Rhodes, and they would sail into this baker, and they were very excited because he had made something that was completely new to them. And what the baker had done is basically combined ginger with bread and made a ginger-flavored bread. But even more exciting to them is that they sailed away weeks later, the bread wasn't disintegrating. It was, it was stabilized because of the ginger in it. So they took this to all these other little nations that they conquered and everyone just about immediately fell in love with the flavor of ginger. So we even know in, uh, in England, the place where all the spices were sold at one time, they were called Ginger Street. Yeah, well the Romans, the Romans sailed down here and, and got the ginger from here. So now you're at about you know, 100 AD or so. 
And, and by now, they're conquering these little kingdoms in, in Europe. And one of the last ones that they got to was England. And they brought ginger to England. And the English loved ginger. Uh, they were not bringing the fresh roots. Though the way to transport ginger over all those, those huge distances was to dry out the roots. How do you slice them like that and you dry them? If you grind that dried out ginger, that's what, what you know, it's the powdered ginger that you get in the grocery store. So it's, that's the dried root that they were trading. And that's what made its way up to England. So I got scolded once because my, my husband came in and looked at the computer and there was like the royal family on the screen. But I had just Googled history of ginger and it was there was a question as to whether Princess Di's child was her husband's because there was no history of ginger hair in the royal family. So it was very common for, for someone with red hair to be called ginger, ginger hair or ginger head. Yeah, because they're fiery person. <laughs> And uh, we also know that Queen Elizabeth I had a real sweet tooth, and one of her cool customs was that when you were lucky enough to be invited to a, a feast at the palace, at the very end, you would pre be presented a gingerbread lord or lady in your exact likeness. Now imagine how, how hard that would be before the days of the internet. And uh, we have a ton of pastry chefs as customers, and I kind of I, I always say like, hey, do you think you would be able to do that if we had this party? Or Gail Gand, would you please? Uh, but I just concluded that Queen Elizabeth had a heck of a lot more money than I do, because no no one will take me up on that challenge. Yeah, you know, the, the, the British like this stuff so much. The um, the pub keepers in the Middle Ages would keep big jars of ginger uh, behind the bar, and when when one of the customers or one of the people in the rooms or whatever would have a tummy or a cold, the ginger got brought out and, and put into their beer, and then they would take a, a hot poker out of the fire and stir it up and warm it up, and you would drink that. And it was very good for your cold or your tummy. So one of our most popular things that we stock is actually candied or crystallized ginger. And basically, they take the ginger where it's cut. Uh, I always forget, is it Vietnam or Thailand? Thailand, and while it's fresh, they slice it, and they cook it basically in sugar water for three or four times, and then it, it, uh, it preserves it. The, in, also in the Middle Ages, there was a great, uh, a great herbal doctor named uh, Culpepper. Now, you gotta remember, all doctors were herbal doctors up until like, what, 100, 150 years ago. You didn't have pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies are very, very new in the history of the planet. So, so before pharmaceutical companies, all doctors had was, was birds, minerals that you could get out of the earth, or parts of animals for medicine. So Dr. Culpepper wrote this big book of all the, all the medicinal plants and what he used them for. And, and in that book, Dr. Culpepper prescribed ginger for his patients who were weak in the sports of Venus. Which is a proper British euphemism. <laughs> so they were using it for far more than just tummy aches and a cold. So we have to laugh because, as I said, this is my family business. My husband and I have been together almost 40 years, and uh, we've been in the spice business together for 20 seven years or so, and uh, we're surrounded by spices, and anytime we do research, all spices and a lot of herbs are considered very, very strong aphrodisiacs. So even though we're surrounded by spices and we live and breathe spices, we don't have any children. <laughs> 
So again, we think that was a that's really good propaganda on the part of these storytellers of the spices that who doesn't like a good aphrodisiac? So early marketing. Yes. Um, we're talking to this group last year, and the one lady says, "Well, you have to do more than just eat the spices." <laughs> So we're going to pass around some of our wonderful crystallized ginger. If you can't have sugar, this has sugar on it. If you don't like ginger, you will not like this. <laughs> so another spice that we know for its medicinal properties, in the past at least, is nutmeg. And this one we, we can't pin down in history. It's a very odd thing. For some reason, when the plague was running rampant in in Europe and particularly in London, and thousands of people were dying every day. What time frame are we in now? 1600s. <clears throat> Early 1600s. Um, the only thing that was thought to save or cure you from the plague was nutmeg. And why this connection came, we can't figure out when we try to do research on history. It didn't really work, but a lot of the doctors thought it worked. Well, you don't know it didn't work. You weren't there. <laughs> well, they must have had some success. Really good. So anyway, this did not grow in anybody's backyard anywhere in Europe. You had to go across the world to the Spice Islands or the Molucas to seek out nutmeg. The Spice Islands down here, okay? Uh, so in the, in the 15, 1600s, uh, this is, there are, what, a couple thousand islands down here. Uh, you, you would think, well, that's... Tropical paradise. No. No, no. It took Europeans a year to get there. They started out, they got around Africa, they would come up through here, through the Straits of Malacca, and over to the Spice Islands. It took a year. When they got there, you can have mine. The mosquitoes were as big as your fist. There was volcanoes. There was tropical heat. Look at you're right on the equator and look at the latitude they're coming from. They weren't used to it. They were dropping like flies. They couldn't, they couldn't drink enough water. They were totally dehydrated. Um, you can, you can uh, there were volcanoes. Volcanoes <coughs> in island nations bring tsunamis. So, so sailing, sailing into Indonesia to get the spices was like sailing into hell. Okay? They only did it because they could make a lot of money. <clears throat> so what were we talking about? We were talking about the nutmeg. Yeah, nutmeg. So we have some beautiful nutmeg and some mace that we brought back from uh, Grenada, which is in the Caribbean. There's Grenada there. And when the Dutch controlled the spice monopoly, you could not take any nutmeg anywhere. They had a process of liming nutmeg, and it was the penalty of death if you were caught smuggling nutmeg off of any of these spice islands. Yeah. So yeah, how... So how, how did this come to Grenada uh, from these very uh, guarded Dutch people? And this is what we like to call the, the sex life of a nutmeg rated PG-13. Okay, so these nutmegs come from Grenada, which is here. And nutmegs are indigenous to the Spice Islands, which are here. Birds did not take them. Okay. What happened was... Uh, the Dutch controlled the Spice Islands at that time, and for a long time they controlled the Spice Islands. And the British wanted to get in on it. So, so the British, let's see if I got this right. Oh no, okay, so uh, everybody, everybody, the French too wanted to get in on this. So uh, down here, these, these were French colonies, and the, the French king appointed uh, a governor to this island here, Mauritius. His name was Pierre 
Paul from? Which is a great spice. Peter means Peter. Peter and Paul from Pepper. Yeah, that was the guy's name. Seems like a, a stage name. He was, he was an adventurer guy. He had, he, had been, he had been around the world. He had been uh, up to Japan. He had been through Indonesia several times, back to France. Uh, he had lost an arm to a cannonball. He only had one arm. And uh, so anyway, the, the king appoints him governor of Mauritius. Now, which is right here. So, um, <coughs> there's nothing to do. He, he doesn't know what to plan on Mauritius to send back to the king. The idea of colonialism is to send back something of value to the motherland. And, uh, but he knew, he had been to Indonesia, he knew that the nutmegs grew in that type of climate and he knew what latitude and what elevation to plant the nutmeg trees. He just had to get some. So he takes a ship back to Indonesia, and, and the Dutch are there, and the Dutch are watching. And, uh, and he pulls into the harbor where he knew the, the local folk. He had been there before. And, uh, and, and the Dutch are going to blow him out of the water, but they're not really at war with France. They hate the English. They're at war with the English, but this guy's. You know, they're from France, and you know, we really shouldn't blow them up. We could get in trouble with, with Amsterdam. So they figure if he loads any cargo, then we'll blow So Paul Brock gets in his dinghy and he goes ashore and he makes a deal with the local Molotov chieftains. History doesn't tell us what the deal was. But he trades for about trades for about a hundred nutmegs. And he puts the hundred nutmegs in the empty sleeve of his coat. <laughs> gets back in his dinghy, goes back to the boat, the Dutch are watching him, and gets back in his boat, and, uh, and, 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 and the Dutch just let him know. I don't think he has any cargo. He plants a hundred nutmeg trees on his island here at Mauritius, and the trees get to be about this big, and then he gets reassigned to France. Oh. And it's very far off. The next, Governor takes over, the trees get bigger, and now they're getting flowers. And they're all excited because, oh, you know, what comes after the flowers? The fruit. And what's inside the fruit? The nutmegs. Okay, so, so they're all excited, they get flowers, but the flowers just close up and fall off the trees. Only in one quarter of the plantation, only in one quarter did any of the flowers produce any fruit. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, with all the turmoil going on between the Dutch and the English and the French in here, a lot of the Indonesian folk had gotten the heck out of there. Some of them had ended up on Mauritius. So the governor calls the Indonesian folk over, and he says, hey guys, you know about nothing. How come I'm getting, I'm getting no fruit? I got flowers here, flowers here, but only fruit over in this corner. And the Indonesian folk said, well, you know, you know, Mr. Governor, um, the trees aren't married. They're not making love. And, uh, you know, the French are supposed to know about that. See, in, 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 in botany, there's a term called dioecious, where you have, you have male flowers and you have female flowers. And they have to, you have to have the right bugs or the right wing to, to, for pollination to occur. So, um, so the Dutch, or I'm sorry, the, the Indonesian folk teach the French how to graft a branch from a female tree under the trunk of a male tree. And then how to graft a branch from uh, 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 a middle tree onto a female tree. And the flowers from those branches would pollinate the rest of the tree. And they did that throughout the whole plantation. 
mosquito rolls around, the flowers come out, and the whole plantation produced nutmegs. And they're all excited. Oh, that worked really good. So, so, so they take these very expensive nutmegs, and they take them back to France, and they made a whole lot of money on them. And they said, well, that worked really good. Let's take them over. Let's, let's plant these in another problem colony that we got over here called La Grenade. So the French planted La Grenade in all kinds of, in, 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 in half the island. And they knew you had to grow them right near the ocean and at a certain elevation. And they knew how to do that. And now we call La Grenade Grenada. And Grenada is the number two producer of nutmegs in the whole world. All based on the French theme. Do you want to talk about another thing about nutmeg? The, Quickly. There's one more thing. Okay, so, okay, so the, 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 the English and the Dutch are fighting over here over the nutmeg, and, and they're having this big feud. There's this wine called Pula Run, or, 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 or Run, they call it, just in, in, in general, because Pula means island. So it's island of Run, Pula Run. Let's just call it Run, okay? So it's real little, there's no fresh water, you can't put a colony on it or anything, but it, it grew hundreds and hundreds of nutmeg trees, and tons and tons of nutmegs. So, so the English go there, plant their flag there, and harvest the nutmegs. They come back the next year, and the Dutch are there with cans, and they're shooting at them. So they have a battle, and they, and they, and they throw the Dutch off. The next year, um, the Dutch come back and throw the British off. And this goes on five, six, seven years. And, and, and it's a big, major feud between the English and the Dutch. So back then, when you had an international feud, you had no, no UN to go to. So what, what, if you had an international feud in, in, in your European, up until then, you know, you'd go to the Pope, and the Pope would settle it. Well, England and, and Amsterdam, Holland, they were, they were both Protestant countries. And the Pope only does Catholic feuds. <laughs> so, so they had to figure it out themselves. And here's the deal they made. The, the English said, uh, okay, okay, we'll give up. We'll give up this big nutmeg-producing island, and you can have it, Mr. Hollander. And the Dutch said, thank you very much, Mr. Englishman. Uh, in return, we'll, we'll give you this problem colony we got over here called New Amsterdam. <laughs> so the English marched into New Amsterdam and renamed it New York. True story. Hard to believe, but... So um, another interesting story where we have a lack of understanding of botany. We didn't bring any with us, unfortunately. Um, so now we're in Mexico in the 1500s, and Cortez is, or is it the 1400s? Cortez is exploring Mexico, and he is trying to, his orders are to bring, bring back things of value for the king and queen of Spain, because Spain is involved in three or four different wars at the same time, and they need to finance these wars. So he's in Mexico looking for basically gold, silver, uh, minerals. He basically is excited because he sees the natives are wearing these things, but when he makes his way into the palace of Montezuma, and he goes into the, invades the treasury, the coffers of the treasury, there is no gold and silver. There is a mound of these things that look like long 
dried out green beans, which we forgot to bring samples with us, unfortunately, and uh, these kind of orangish-brown things that he thinks are related to coconuts, but those two things end up being vanilla and cacao. Right, so, so initially he's not very pleased with this find, but then the... His hosts very graciously show them these amazing foods they have and this drink that they call Nectar of the Gods, which is basically a hot cocoa drink, but they have these flavors, corn and honey and chocolate and vanilla all together, and it's the most amazing thing ever. All very strong. <laughs> and they are wise enough when they leave not to just take the vanilla beans and the cacao pods, they take the cuttings and the vine and there's a botanist on board that knows this. So they're going to take the plants, the cuttings of the, okay, so vanilla is an orchid, I did not say that. So anyone that grows orchids knows that orchids are not an easy plant to cultivate and to get to flower. So they take the cuttings back to Spain. Yeah. Um, these, the flowers are only open for one day. So, so they're open that day, and they got to be pollinated that day. And if they're pollinated that day, they'll close up, and the fruit comes up from underneath. The fruit being a green bean. And this is orchid fruit. Has it. This is orchid fruit. Uh, the, the, the beans stay on the vine until they reach a certain length, and then and then they're picked, and they're made in the sun to dry. Now, if you take any fruit, anyway, uh, if, if, if you lay fruit in tropical sun to dry, it's just going to dry up and get crispy. So they, what they do with this stuff is that they, they, they turn it a couple times during the day, and then if you see, if you look, it's sitting on like these burlap mats. And at nighttime, they'll just wrap wrap up the beans in the mats, and put the mats and the beans in, in this wooden box, and put a cover over it. And then the cool night air rolls in off the ocean. You're close to the ocean, you're in Veracruz. The cool air rolls in, and you've got warm beans in the box. Cool air outside the box creates condensation, gets the beans damp. So in the morning, they take the damp beans out of the box, lay them back up the summer. And then, at night time, they wrap them up in the burlap, put them back in the box, they get damp the next morning, they take them out of the box, they put them back in the sun. This goes on for six months. And what happens is, over that six months, the vanilla cures very slowly, and it turns black, or brown, dark brown, and that's the vanilla of trade. The green beans that you're looking at there have no flavor, none at all. It takes that curing process, to make them black and, and to develop those flavors. So we've tried everything to make the to make the process go faster and it ain't happening. God says it's gonna take six months, it's gonna take six months. Now we can we we found out or figured out maybe hundred years ago or so how to blanch them in water and take maybe three, four weeks off of the process blanching hot water, but, uh, but that's about all we can get it down to. So it takes a long time to make to make the vanilla of trade from the beans. We'll take questions after. Remember that. Okay. Right. 
So vanilla really is sky high in price right now, and there's there's a couple of different reasons for that. Um, some of it has to do with weather. Some of it has to do with politics. Some of it has to do with um, <laughs> greed. I, apparently, there there's a new process in place where they're figuring out how to uh, extract the oil out of green vanilla beans for the perfume industry. And so it's to the farmer's advantage to sell a bean green if he can get money for it rather than to go through the whole process to turn it brown. But it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a very involved and complicated story, but it's kind of like if you, if you never had a oak-aged bourbon and you sold all the bourbon fresh and young, uh, if it all got used for that, you wouldn't get any of the finer aging process. So we're, it's, that's going back and forth in the spice industry, but you will probably pay more for vanilla right now than you ever had in your whole entire life, and we're hoping that's going to change. Some of it, again, has to do with the amount of vanilla grown, because often cyclones hit Madagascar, and it's not uncommon for more than a dozen cyclones hit Madagascar in one year. So some that's beyond anybody's control, basically. But there is one spice that is more expensive than vanilla, which is hard to believe, Saffron, exactly right. Saffron also is a flower, but it's just a crocus flower. It's a, it's a little, little purple, little crocus. You can grow it right here in Chicago. So this is a one-pound box of saffron. This is our highest grade of saffron, which is called coupe, which means it's all red threads. So basically, it takes about 200,000 flowers to fill this box, and there's three different stamen that come out of each flower, and that's all. So in Spain, or in the Kashmir region of India where this grows, they'll have harvest parties in the fall, and they will put all the flowers and throw them on a big table, and then they will pick out the little threads. And basically, the, uh, the children actually can do a really good job of picking because their fingers are very nimble. So this box is probably, this is pretty full, is it like yeah, two? This is $3,800 worth of saffron here. It's a beautiful product. You probably can smell it if you're in the front row. We're not going to pass this around, <laughs> but you are very welcome to come up and smell it. And you can see, again, this is all red threads. The flavor is in the red threads. You think that maybe it would be yellow because it turns the food yellow, but the red threads are what you want. And should you go to Chinatown, you might see a little bag that says saffron, $1 this big, and that's never, ever going to be saffron for a dollar. So it's a little bit kind of a saff flower. It's almost a, like a marigold petal. And it will turn your food yellow. You can get your food to turn yellow from far less expensive things, but you will not ever duplicate the flavor of saffron because it's extremely unique in its flavor. Yeah, in some parts of the world, uh, people think that if it makes food yellow, it's saffron. We were in the Caribbean, and uh, they had real nice, real nice stores, you know, with big with bottles of, of yellow powder that were labeled, you know, nice flower labeled saffron, you know, two dollars and fifty cents, and you know, it was it was terrible, but because because it made your food yellow, they thought it was you would call it saffron, you know, it was a colloquial term, you know. So, in fact, we have, we have customers that come by and they say. Yeah, I was in Istanbul, and I got this, I got that actual, and look, I got this saffron. This was, this was poured out, and they got this big hand for the saffron, and when you look at it, it's not the stuff. So, uh, my father-in-law likes to say that this business was started by pirates, and there's still pirates in it. <laughs> so... 
I guess we're going to open it up for questions, and I do want to tell you that we, um, we normally make these cool little gift packs where I select what I'm going to give you, but we had a big fire in our old town shop, and we've kind of been out of commission there. So you have basically uh, some of the things that I could find that were not normally what I would choose. But so some of you have garden salad seasoning, which I absolutely love. Uh, I love it on vegetables. I love it on a, a caprese salad. It's great with tomatoes and um, some of you have everything bagel which is a which is a newer blend of ours basically you can just mix that with hummus and it makes an amazing dip and some of you have Greek seasoning but you all have a little bag with our Chicago Old Town Spice Sugar and that's one of our absolute favorite things in our whole store and that was my dad's creation and sometimes my dad shared things sometimes he didn't but he so loved our Old Town shop we used to we used to get brought down when we were when we were children we'd come once a year to Chicago and we'd go to Old Town and I don't know why but we all loved Old Town then, so we're talking probably back in the 70s, and he had this, he had this great way of, um, of uh, making our trip go so that as soon as we said, Dad, what does XXX mean? And he'd go, look, kids, there's the fudge pot, and we'd run squealing, squealing down the street to the fudge pot, so we never got that question answered, and now, now it's a very, very different neighborhood in Old Town, but it's a wonderful neighborhood. We love it there, and we just opened a little shop in Navy Pier, which is very unusual for us, and um, and then I do want to tell you my niece, who was supposed to be with us today, she wrote this book called On Spice. And it's, a, it's a really nice little book. It's a, she, all of us kind of earned our allowance working for my parents, in her case, her grandparents. So she kind of apprenticed. So she, um, she was the editor for the AV Club at The Onion. And I kind of thought I would be the one writing this book, but she's a much better writer than I am. So it's like, you know, there's, there's a time when you pass things along to the next generation. So if anyone's interested in this book, it's $20. And it's a, it's a really nice little book. And it's got some recipes in it. And Deb made some food from the book today that we're going to be tasting. Thanks, Deb. <laughs> So, what questions do you all have about spices? Want to start over here? Yes. Is, is saffron is saffron grown in Afghanistan? Afghanistan, yes. Uh, uh, they're trying to. There are certain groups in Afghanistan that are trying to get the farmers away from growing poppies and into growing saffron. Problem is, worldwide market for saffron is just way down. People don't cook the way they used to. People used to make a lot of bouillabaisse, you know, a lot of paella, a lot of stuff that used saffron. People used to put saffron in their bread, in their rice. And you're just not finding that anymore. People just don't cook that way anymore, unfortunately. So market, worldwide market for saffron is down. And here we're trying to talk to these farmers in Afghanistan, hey, don't grow poppies, grow saffron. And then they're having a hard time selling the saffron. So it, it's kind of a catch-22, but yes, saffron is grown here in Chicago. It grows everywhere. But, um, but they're good at growing it in the Kashmir region of India, some of the best saffron right up in here. The Persians have been growing saffron for centuries in Iran, and that's why it also grows really good up there in, in Afghanistan. We've been there historically. It's kind of funny. Right. What about Turkey? Turkey? Sure. Turkey grows saffron. Yeah. But they don't export it. They, uh, they use it all. Some countries export their best things and their people can't get it. Other, pe other countries reserve their best things for the people that live there, and it's all different all over the world. Okay. What is used to make imitation vanilla? If you, if you, if you, if you have a wine, a wine critic, and a wine critic smells and tastes vanilla, He's eating like 
15 different flavors that he's identifying. And, you know, I mean, it, it could be, it could be fresh and old grass, it could be apricots, it could be, you know, a light one, right? Well, the central flavor, the central flavor in vanilla, vanilla is a long list of flavors that can be identified, but the central flavor is valid. And valid is that, the, that central flavor that we know as, as vanilla. That compound, that valine compound is found in a lot of plants. It's found in corn, but it's found in, it's also found in trees. And you can get it from trees real cheaply when, when you go to the paper mills and you take the byproduct from the paper making industry and there's valine in that. And it could be, the valine can be extracted from, from the residue of the paper making industry and, and, and Isolate it, and then you add some brown liquid to it, and some sugar, and you have imitation vanilla. That's what a lot of times they'll say, vanilla vanilla, or vanilla vanilla. That's what imitation vanilla is. But it won't have it won't have the big flavor scope that real vanilla has. It'll have that central flavor of that all. It won't have the Realistically speaking, though, it's very it's difficult for people to tell which is which, and I think that Fine Cooking did a, uh, one of their tests many years ago, and they actually had chefs tasting vanilla in cooked products, and most could not taste the difference between imitation and pure in the finished product. And so when vanilla gets sky high like this, we always, I'll email our customers and say, would you like us to stock an imitation inexpensive vanilla just for this point in time uh, so you have something you can use? And they say, absolutely not. I want the real deal. So again, perception. So we got to take one back here. What is the fruit of nutmeg and is it edible? Um, the nutmeg plant, it's to me, it looks kind of like if you imagine in the Midwest, a chestnut growing on a tree. And when it's green, it splits right wide open. That's the pod. Inside is nutmeg and there's mace covering the nutmeg. So the mace is bright, beautiful scarlet when, you, when it's first grown. They peel off the mace, there's a tiny shell, the shell gets cracked, and nutmeg, which we have right here, is the inner, uh, it's just like a, it's like a pit of a peach, basically. So. so, so the nutmeg is edible, the mace covering the nutmeg is edible, the pulpy fruit around that is not edible. No, they make a liqueur out of that. They squeeze it and they make oil and um, and you can make a liqueur out of it. But the, uh, the the squeezed oil from that fruit is used for um, is the one of the central aromatics in the Vicks Vapor Rub and that. It's that real strong kind of flavor. But but they don't eat it. But they do harvest it and process it. You can't eat it. Scott. We try very, the question is about cinnamon and if you tasted it and you liked it, was it because it was fresh? And that's, that's a big, big part of it. And we try very hard to only stock top quality products. So in the case of cinnamon, we're looking for a very high oil content. And the second, the last cinnamon you tasted had the highest oil content of all. So yeah, it's, it's freshness is a big part of it. And cinnamon is, is really sweet on its own. And people are surprised. They think we add sugar to it, but we don't. There's, so. there's two things that determine that. A good flavor on its own. Number one is, like Patty said, oil content. So if this is two and a half percent Indonesian, you can get two percent, you can get one and a half, you can get one and a quarter, you can get one, you can get, there's all different grades, you can get 
get and call it Indonesian cash synonym. Okay? So, and the price is way different. You know, if I pay, if I pay per ton, you pay like four dollars a pound when you buy per ton for this, you could buy you could buy 1.2 percent synonym, you know, for half that. And spice merchants will do that because it's half the price when you buy it by the ton and grind it up and you go, well this doesn't taste because ours is two and a half percent, there's one and a half percent. The second thing is, the second thing is, when was it ground? Remember, what gives it the flavor is volatile oil. Volatile. Volatile means reaction that evaporates. That's what gives all that's what gives it all the flavor. So if I grind it and then and then sell it to you a year later, how much of that oil has evaporated off? Yeah, it's in a plastic bag. You know, but stuff is still evaporating and drying on, you know. So, uh, so if it's grown last week, none of the oil is evaporated off, it's going to be more volatile. So those two things matter on some of and that's why some people are big on grinding their own spices, because then you can keep your spices for years and grind them, but it's a lot of work to do that. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Well, I should say thank you for providing very high quality spices. Oh, thank you. Great service, I should say. We're talking to 20 years. Wow. I'll ask you, there are three Indian spice mixes that are not usually available for you. One is garam masala. Garam masala. Garam masala. Other is curry powder that we do. Mm-hmm. Garam masala. We do have a garam masala, and as you know, you can make, garam masala is just a spicy mixture. You could make it really thousands of ways. So we do carry that, and we do grind it, and typically in Indian cooking, you would roast it first, but the, uh, the Chicago Fire Department is very, they don't give roasting license to, to hardly anyone in the spice business. And then we do have, uh, we have probably, we have a whole curry department. We probably have seven or eight different curries. Um, but again, that's very, very subjective. Yeah. So, and, um, We've had for for a decade, but we're very careful to say, hey, look, this is cashmere type garmasala, which is far different than garmasala that you find in the South. Right? You know, uh, India is a, a huge, huge subcontinent. And when you, when you look at the bottom of India, think of New Orleans, Think of New Orleans, and up there, think of Canada. So the cuisine is very, very different. So you're making garam masala here, and you're making garam masala there, and, and it's one grandmother and one aunt, and, one, and, and it's totally different. So it's hard for us to, to make 10 different garam masalas, so we, just, we make one. And we make, we make two Indian curries, a hot one and a hot one. You know, um, if you go to Devon Street, there could be five, six of them, but only half of them are any good. So, um, yeah, you know, a, a lot of times the best stuff, you just roast it and make it at home. A couple of times I tried getting the No, be sure and ask, because we do make it, and it's marvelous, and when we grind it, it's one of my favorite scents in the air of all of our things. And, and then the other third thing is that we, we do also have to have a, a, an end-user market for something. So, so very often, we had 600 products in our line, and they all have to have a following, because if they don't sell fresh, then our whole premise of fresh spices is out the door. So we've tried many, many things, and some get discontinued because nobody is buying them. So uh, let's go right here. 
Oh, no, you just asked another one-hour lecture question, <laughs> one, one of Tom's favorite subjects, so kosher salt. What is kosher salt? Is it blessed by the rabbi? <laughs> now, co co the reason they call it kosher salt is, is because of the size. Okay, a kosher, put that, uh, a kosher salt is just mined salt. They put mine out of the, uh, out of the ground, and they put it in water, it, and, it, and it dissolves in water. And then they evaporate the water a special way so that the, when the water is all evaporated, the crystals, the salt crystals that remain are a certain size and flake. They want to be light and flaky. And they get that by the evaporation process. They call it kosher salt because a kosher butcher needs to salt the meat. And, and the idea of a kosher butcher salting the meat is that you draw the moisture, you draw the blood out of the meat. It's, part, it's casual tradition, casual law. <clears throat> kosher salt, that flake size, uh, absorbs a lot of moisture because of the size of the particle. So a kosher butcher wants to use that size particle to absorb more moisture from the meat. So we call that particle size kosher salt. Chefs like to use it because there a lot of, there's a lot of air, there's a lot of space in the particles. So a teaspoon of kosher salt in food has a lot less of that super salty, tinny flavor that you get from, from the real fine salt. So that's why chefs like to use it. You get a, it's less abrasive than its own. You know, and it's a smoother, salty flavor. We carry about 14 kinds of salt and uh, Back when the internet was first up and popular, I would field questions about, do you have Celtic salt? Do you have salt from... And look at this map and see how many countries border the ocean. Every single one of those can harvest their salt. So we made a conscious decision not to become the Salt House, which is somebody else's company. So we have about, a, like I said, 14 kinds of salt that we carry. Yes? So, what is what is in Ras al Okay, just think of Ras al as a Moroccan curry. Right, because there's a lot of the same ingredients. But I think the ingredient is probably nine to twelve different spices. That was given to us by a, a, a Sephardic Jew named Kitty Morris, who wrote several books on Moroccan cooking. And she gave us the recipe for that. And it's a great one. It's a great one. But the picture, just to think of it as, as a Moroccan curry color. Supposedly with that one in the old days, as a spice merchant, if you would walk in and ask for Ras al Hanout, uh, the merchant would size you up and see how expensive your watch was or if your shoes were leather or canvas, and, and they would gauge how much money you could spend. And if you had saffron in your Ras al Hanout, it was clearly you were dressed very nicely. So it was kind of a, you know, done to... Uh, All right, I'll ask him how right here? Okay, let's, let's take one, one more. We'll ask Scott how... So the question is basically is what cuisine uses a lot of spices and cuisines that don't have, and, and why? Well, that's a very good and long involved question. Uh, of course, we know Indian cooking uses many, many spices, but um, the spices grow in India, so they're indigenous to the area. So of course, someplace, maybe parts of Asia and Europe, um, spices had to be transported, and what spices got brought by what explorers and then got embraced by what communities, is, it's, it's hugely involved. Well, we do know that, that most spices are tropical plants. So, you know, the, the band around, you know, around the, the, the equator is gonna have a lot more spices and 
these, even here, even here, you know, these, these areas prefer hot, hot, hot food. Makes you sweat. Cools off the inside of your body. You get to Central Asia, and that's another story. I'll tell you, there's been a lot of climate change over the last thousand years. When the, when the Silk Road was popular up here, there was, this was a temperate zone. This, you know, this was like, you know, uh, Iowa and, and grasslands and like Illinois and Central Plains and such. Now it's, it's crusty desert. It's, it's horrible. And not a lot of stuff grows there. And you're talking about the food being bad in Central Europe or Central Asia. Yeah, it is. Nothing grows. You know, so if anything's going to be fresh, it's, it's flown in. Uh, they do have a lot of cattle. Uh, and things in there, but uh, plant-wise, there ain't much growing in there anymore. But you'll take, you even take something like French cooking, which is considered one of the top cuisines in the world, but I remember uh, one of our chef customers, Sarah Stegner, who was at the Ritz and then had prairie grass, she came to me and apologized and said, I'm sorry, Patty, I'm not a better customer, but the French really don't cook with very many spices. So it, it is a really interesting study of who has spicy food and who doesn't. And also a lot of times where spices, like Tom said, was along the equator, the spices served as a cooling purpose. So it's kind of hard to understand that if you eat hot spices, it cools your body. Or a lot of um, Indian cooking that's beans and legumes and things that are somewhat hard to digest, the spices are used for really more of a medicinal purpose in addition to the flavor. Both, I guess. What about the pink peppercorns? Pink peppercorns are not a member of the black pepper family but they came from the island of Reunion, which was owned by France. You can taste it if you want to. They're, um, they're spicy and they're soft, and basically the French did an excellent marketing idea. I, I wouldn't call them spicy. They're not, I'm not afraid. Well, sweet spicy. They're not even related to pepper. They're just the exact same size. <laughs> So the French call them pink pepper. Yeah, but this French-owned island of Reunion where they found these berries and they said, hey, these berries look a lot like black pepper. Um, what is the most used, we said, what is the most used uh, spice on the planet? And it's black pepper. So the French were like, well, let's call these pink pepper. And then it'll be a good seller automatically. I like the way they taste. He doesn't like them at all. But when you simmer them in a liquid, their flavor changes and they become very, very much like black pepper in, in flavor. People think, well, they're red. They look like pepper. Yeah, they're they're a spicy, a spicy sweet. Other questions? Oh, in Old Town. So we had a fire in Old Town, and it wasn't as far as fires go. It wasn't really a bad fire because it happened during the middle of the day, and there was roofers on the roof. And anytime there's roofers like Notre Dame, it's you know there's fire and there's tar and there's things that go wrong. So uh, basically, the building next to us filled with smoke, and that manager came over and said, "Hey, do you guys notice anything?" And we're like, <laughs> "So um, we had, but when." The fire department comes in, many, many, many gallons of water pour into your, into your business. So we have just, we just threw away $40,000 worth of inventory, which is very, very painful. I just wish we could have, you know, almost like that could have burned up and been a wonderful, a wonderful pyre of <laughs> spicy flavoring. That could have been great advertising if that would have made the news. <laughs> Spiciest fire. So we're taking a while to um, basically, we had to get rid of everything and we were wanted to do some remodeling and so it's now the time to do remodeling. So I think it's probably going to be October 1st, which is a long time. It's hard to believe a tiny shop would take that long to get reopened. But we did just open a place in Navy Pier and I know that's not anyone's ideal destination, but if you do happen to be in Navy Pier, there's there's things there, and uh, 
Yeah, Navy Pier, it's just, uh, I mean, but people come there from all over the world, so it's a kind of a core, just we're thinking of it more as advertising than anything else. Yes? Shelf life. That's a great question. Is there a shelf life to spices? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so as we said, when we're grinding our cinnamon, it's got, we, we basically say about a one-year shelf life. Um, I know, I'm interrupting. But if you have ground spices like this, the cell walls now are busted open because they're grown. And once the cell walls are busted open, the volatile oils are out and they're, and they're in the air. So, okay, it says it's one to two years for ground spices. If we have whole spices like this or like this, they find this stuff in archaeological digs and they can still identify them. Now, I'm not saying we can keep them that long. But whole spices can last years and years, whereas ground spices like this, like Patty says, one to two years. Does that help? If you open up the jar and it doesn't smell anymore? Yeah, that's your best test is the smell. And people... Yeah, it won't hurt you, but it won't give you what you want. And people ask us, too, all the time, can you freeze spices? And it's like, well, you can freeze spices, but... To me, my freezer space is very valuable. I, I don't. It's something I can get. And if I lived in Alaska, maybe I would freeze my spices. You could, you so. could freeze ketchup too, but why would you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, Beck. Then all the paste keeps indefinitely. Yeah. yeah there's um. Yeah, there's sugar and, and alcohol in it, and it'll it'll keep like a bottle of booze. Yeah. Same with vanilla extract. Oh, vanilla paste? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, Pastry chefs really like it. It's, it's dreadfully expensive, but you can almost eat it by the spoonful. It's pretty delicious. So what other questions? One over here. Where is our research facility? <laughs> yes, here and here. We enjoy doing research a lot, um, but it's just, no, we just have little couple little stores and we do have a fulfillment center in Skokie and most people that work for us really really enjoy the spices and occasionally there's maybe 10% of our employees that are just you know over the top with all the you know like we used to be when we were young <laughs> you know they're devouring everything coming did you know this did you know this so 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 as we retire we realize like our time is kind of winding down and we try to bring up some people and mentor some people that you know the next as I said, my niece, I'm very excited that she wrote this book, but she has other interests, and she's going into the world of socialism, believe it or not. So I think my, my dad would be very happy about that, actually. <laughs> what other questions? Scott? Uh, you said, like, not to three spices, but are there any times when you should keep them in the refrigerator? Yes, are there any times you should keep spices in the refrigerator? And the general rule of thumb is seeds and red spices should actually be kept in the refrigerator. So seeds, like poppy seeds, sesame seeds, they go rancid. So you put them in the refrigerator to keep them fresh. Celery so seed, yeah, any seed basically. And red spices, um, red spices are very attractive to bugs. So there's a lot of vitamin C and oils in them. So sometimes they'll get bugs if you're just chili peppers. If anyone has chili peppers or loves chili peppers, you know that bugs, bugs come with chili peppers very often. So those are better kept in the refrigerator. In fact, you can, you can have a longer shelf life for most of your spices by keeping them in the refrigerator. Plastic versus glass for storage. Plastic is not good for storing spices. Um, we have like a high kind of food grade plastic that we use, but they're far better transferred into glass containers. And even if you had dark glass containers, those would be even even better, although they don't, for some reason, no glass manufacturers make 
spice shaker jars in dark. The extracts they do, but they have a very narrow top, so. Plastic, we don't like plastic at all. I mean, we'll, we'll sell stuff in this, but when you get it home, you should put it in something else. Some things, like um, um, citrus, so orange peel, lemon peel, lime peel, um, um, nutmeg, cloves are especially, the oils in these plants will react with the oil. The, you know, remember, plastic is an oil-based product. So you've got a lot of oil in the citrus, you've got a lot of oil in the cloves, you've got a lot of oil in nutmegs, and that will react with the plastic a lot. So, you know, and, and it takes a long time for that to happen, but we don't like, we don't like plastic for storage a lot. Use, use glass or use like metal containers is good or ceramic or, or something else. This is good for a week or two, you know. Uh, now for, for things that are so high in oil, you can put this in the freezer or the fridge and you know, you can get a year or so out of it, but it's better in something like this. Two more questions. Two more questions. If you have glass, yes, yes. If you buy spices in plastic, could you transfer them over to glass? Yeah, you know, if it's, you get a little, a little plastic thing like this of oregano, that'll be fine. Uh, there's a few things that are really oily that you don't want in plastic. Yes, back in the corner there. So the, the question is, why, why do we seem to like hotter foods? And um, this country has always been about big, bold flavors. And um, in Europe, they use white pepper, whereas we use black pepper. But I remember when we had Julia Child in our store, and it's got to be at least 25 years ago, she said, I just cannot wait for this horrible chili pepper trend to go away. <laughs> and it did not go away. It got, it got different. So uh, you know, the cuisine changes a lot. We sold way more saffron 25 years ago than we do now. And we're a way bigger company. And we were selling more saffron in one little store in Milwaukee than we do now in five stores. Uh, people just cook different. I used to grind, I used to grind 10 pounds of cumin a week and sift it by hand. And it would last us a week. Now 10 pounds of cumin lasts us a day. Uh, we cook differently. We, 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 you know, it used to be cumin was used in a, in, in a pot of chili, and that was it. Now, people are cooking Indian. People are cooking all kinds of, like, you gotta have it in Indian food. You gotta have it in all kinds of Mexican food. You gotta have it in this and this. So people are cooking differently, and the chili pepper and the, and the hot taste in, in food is just part of that cuisine change that you're seeing, you know. I mean, one of the most popular things in France now you know, people can't get in France, they can't get tortillas, and they can't get Mexican food. And they love that stuff, you know, and, 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 and they can't get it. We are taking our very first trip to Europe next month because we've worked our little business our whole life, so we have never been to Europe, and we're going to France. We're going to the area where sea salt is harvested, a particular area, and Tom thinks he's going to spend three or four days apprenticing as a salt polluter. but you see those pictures, and there's wheelbarrows full of salt, which is very, very heavy. <laughs> so I just, I'll be waving from the beach. <laughs> <laughs> So we still love spices enough that that's still, you know, that's our focus everywhere we, everywhere we travel. So then Deb made some things today for us. And so I did um, 
all recipes from the Sisex. So I did a cardamom butter cookie, if that's the one that has a little bit of coconut in it. Um, Kathy did an anise cookie, and I also did the spicy pita, but I bought sago hummus. So the pita chips are the recipe, the hummus I just bought from the store. And one other thing about kosher salt. <laughs> if you use kosher salt, um, remember that there is a difference between the two main manufacturers. The Morton salt is bigger than the crystal salt. Diamond crystal. And so if you have a problem with it being too salty and you use one or the other, it's very possible it's because of the size of that kosher salt. So a lot of recipes will specify, like Morton kosher salt. Um, just think about that, you know, it's just sometimes people will come to me and say, I use kosher salt, and you told me it was less salty, and I said, it is less salty. They said, well, it was less like too salty. Well, it's because they have to use kosher salt. So, anyway. Okay, so everything is set up in the back. Thanks, Deb. Okay.